It's been a couple of weeks since we were in John, and so we're going to return again this evening to John chapter 12, and we're going to return for the purpose that we were last in John chapter 12 for a focus on a specific aspect. Two weeks ago when we came back to John after our Christmas hiatus, we looked at the subject of the Son of Man, because this is prominent in the passage that we are studying here in John chapter 12. Jesus declares himself as the Son of Man whose hour has come to be glorified. Later on in the dialogue, the people will ask, who is this Son of Man? This identity looms large, and we studied it last week. This evening, we are going to look at another aspect, another excursus. Excursus means an appendix or a digression to stop and look at another subject that is part of the whole and consider it a little more thoroughly. So again, we've looked at Son of Man. There's another theme that is prominent in this passage, and it is the theme of glorified. We have the words of Jesus when he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that word is going to appear in its different forms numerous times throughout this particular passage. And so we need to go a little deeper. We need to take this time to digress, to look at what Jesus is saying, And to hear what the Father is going to say, and what is behind this emphasis of glorified. So as we come back to this passage here in John chapter 12, we hear Jesus replying to Philip and Andrew who have come to him with a request of the Greeks who want to see Jesus. And Jesus' response is this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then a few sentences later, he will say, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. In John chapter 17, we again hear Jesus using the same terminology. He is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has spent time with his disciples. He has spoken to them and taught them. He has washed their feet, setting an example. He has broken bread with them as they shared the Passover meal and has said to them, this bread represents my body. This cup represents my blood. He has spoken to them of living life in him of the Spirit coming, of their inability to live any aspect as his followers apart from him. They must abide in him. He has promised them that when they pray, the Father will hear in his name. And he, Jesus, will respond so that the Father will be glorified through their prayers. And now in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus kneels before the Father and prays. 
the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. That is a combination that we see very often throughout John. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So we want to dig a little bit deeper into this tonight. This whole subject of glory is very extensive. It's extensive in the Bible. It's extensive in John. It is far too much for us to try and get a broad picture of and yet not get lost in the enormity of everything that the Word of God says about glory. So we want to narrow our focus tonight to John's Gospel. Because central to John's Gospel is the glory of Jesus. And the word glory in its various forms, glorify, glorifies, and glorified, appear 30 times. The first occurrence is in the prologue. And the final occurrence is at the conclusion of Jesus' prayer. There in John 17, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he goes to the cross. 21 of those 30 occurrences are within the six-day period that goes from John chapter 12, when Jesus came in, his triumphal entry, and John 17, as he prays there in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is a significant moment. It gives weight to Jesus saying, the hour has come. And the glory that is associated with that hour or the process, the work of glory that will be involved in that hour. In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cross is Jesus's humiliation and the resurrection is where he is glorified. But in contrast, in John's gospel, it is the crucifixion and death of Jesus that is the greatest display of his glory. Yes, the resurrection does display his glory. But interestingly, the word glory is not used in John's gospel in connection with the resurrection. It is used exclusively in connection to the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. When we look throughout the pages of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, glory refers to the transcendence and the preeminence of God. It is the infinite sum of his infinite attributes. It is everything that God is, and everything that God is is in infinite measure. It is his holiness, righteousness, justice, goodness, love, faithfulness. It includes his power, his authority, his knowledge, or his omniscience, and his genius. All of those things, and remember, he possesses those attributes in infinite measure. So they can't be quantified, and we can't understand the word infinite. We can define it, but we can't comprehend it. But it's all of those things 
that give God his glory, that make him transcendent, that make him preeminent above all others. He is infinite in his holy and holiness and his righteousness. He is infinite in his love and his faithfulness. He is infinite in his power and in his genius. The glory of God is displayed by the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist wrote. Again, a picture of the transcendence of God. That he is above all. And out of those qualities, those attributes that he possesses, he has displayed himself in such glory. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, and in the context of these words, he charged Timothy to be faithful in his ministry. In light of God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. As you read the words of the Apostle Paul here, you can see that emphasis of God's glory, his transcendence, his preeminence. He is the blessed and only ruler. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is immortal. He lives in unapproachable light. No one has seen him or can see him. And because of who he is and what he's like, he merits honor and might forever and ever. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses demanded that God show his glory to him. I smiled as I wrote that line because it really is a demand. When you read the story, Moses is interceding with God over the sin of Israel and making the golden calf and worshiping it. And God has declared his intention not to go with this people. They are stiff-necked, they are hard-headed, and because of what they do, if I went with them, I might destroy them. God has even offered to wipe them out and start all over with just Moses. And Moses contends with God, and God, if you don't go with us, we aren't going. God is willing to send an angel to do exactly the same thing that he will do. For Moses, that's not good enough. He doesn't want the blessings of God. He wants the presence of God. God, if you don't go, I'm not moving. These people aren't going anywhere. If your presence does not go with us, what will distinguish us from any of the other people who are around us? God responded to Moses and said, I will go with you. Moses wasn't finished with God. Read the words in Exodus 33. Moses said to God, now show me your glory. It's as though Moses wants one concession out of 
after another out of God. You are going to go with us. Your presence is going to be with us. Now show me your glory. And God responded to Moses. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Moses, no one can see my face. No one can see my face and live. I can show you my back, but I can't show you my face. My transcendence is too great. In my face, there is unapproachable light. There is glory beyond your ability to experience and stay alive. So, I will cover you with my hand until my face has passed by. And you'll see my back. You'll see my goodness. So this is the transcendent glory of God. Now, as we come back to John's gospel, we read these words in the prologue. Chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here again, we have this word glory. It's the first occurrence, the first and second, in John's gospel. In John chapter 17 and verse 5, Jesus prayed, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So take a moment and reflect on those verses. The word who was with God in the beginning and who is God became flesh, made his dwelling among us. John says we have seen his glory. It's the glory of none other than the one and only Son who came from the Father. How has that glory been displayed? God told Moses, you can't see my face and live. I can't show you my glory. I need to show you my goodness. Jesus prays, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. So let's think about this passage and think about how John presents to us Jesus in his glory. In presenting the incarnation of the word God, and I use that as a hyphenated proper name, the word God, the word was with God, the word was God. John testified to seeing his glory, the glory of the Son, one and only, 
who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what are some of the implications of what John is saying to us as he writes these words? Jesus is the Son, one and only. Jesus spoke to the Father here in John 17 of the glory they shared before the beginning of time. Later on in that prayer, he is going to speak of his desire for his followers to be with him and see this eternal glory oneness that he possesses with the Father. Now John said, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Remember in John chapter 2, we see Jesus beginning his work. There's an interesting exchange that takes place here between Jesus and his mother. They are at the wedding in Cana. They run out of wine. Mary approaches Jesus to tell him. And Jesus said to her, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But she turned to the servants and said, do whatever he tells you to do. And we remember the story of Jesus turning the water into wine. We talked about the implications of it. What did it mean? How was the glory of Jesus revealed? How did it witness the transition from the old covenant to the new? Because remember, John said in the prologue that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Through which and through whom, both the grace and Jesus, we have received one blessing after another. And John tells us that Jesus, through this first miraculous sign, revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. And yet Jesus also declared in John chapter 5 and verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim is your God, remember he's speaking to the Jews who were disputing his work on the Sabbath, his fifth sign of healing the man who had been crippled for all of those years. My Father is the one who glorifies me. And so we have this dynamic that goes back and forth. We see the glory of Jesus, a glory that Jesus has shared with the Father since before the beginning of time. And yet there's this interaction or there's this interdependency. Jesus is unwilling to glorify himself, but the Father glorifies him. And as we see, the Father delights in glorifying the Son, while the Son delights in glorifying the Father. Now, back to the words of Jesus, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Remember that in John's Gospel, Jesus is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is the Son, one and only, who has been with the Father from the beginning. 
as the Son, one and only, as the Word, who is God, he possesses the same infinite and eternal glory that is also possessed by the Father. They are mutual. They share the same essence in their holiness, their righteousness, their omniscience, their power, their authority, their love, their faithfulness, their justice. As the word made flesh, he's the son of man. So he's the son one and only. And by virtue of the son one and only becoming flesh, he's the son of man. And he's the only authorized representative of the father. No one has seen God at any time. Why? Because no one can see God. He dwells in unapproachable light. His glory is transcendent. You can't look on me, Moses, and live. So no one has seen God at any time except God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. And then John said, and those words come from the prologue, verse 18. He has made him known. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Jesus, therefore, as the Word made flesh Son of Man, carries within himself the fullness of deity and the fullness of humanity. Back during the Advent season. We talked much about the incarnation. Jesus possesses within himself the fullness of deity. This is an emphasis that the Apostle Paul makes twice with great clarity while referencing it in many ways in his letter to the Colossians. For the Father, God, was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. In chapter 2 and verse 9, For the fullness of deity dwells in Christ in bodily form. The fullness of what it means to be God. The fullness of that glory. The infinite measure of every attribute that makes him transcendent and preeminent. And yet also fully human and sharing in every way, as the writer to Hebrew emphasizes, our humanity. As the word made flesh son of man, his mission is to reveal the father's heart. Remember, he's in closest relationship with the father. He is nearest the Father's heart. His mission is to reveal the love that God has for all the world. The same love by which he has been eternally loved by the Father. And Jesus refers to that. Connects it with his glory. 
There in John 17, verse 24, as he's praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, I want them to see my glory. I want them to be with me. I want them to be where I am with you. And to see the glory that I have with you because you have loved me from the beginning of the world. This is a wonderful, beautiful truth, isn't it? Jesus is deeply and eternally loved by the Father. He is the beloved Son, the only begotten. He is one in essence with the Father. He shares the same nature. They are deeply bonded to one another. And out of that love that the Father has for his only begotten Son, he wants that Son to reveal the love that he has for the rest of the world. And so that's the mission of Jesus. As the Word made flesh, full of the glory of God, full of the love of the Father, and full of the representation of who he is as the Son of Man, our Savior. As the Father's representation on earth, Jesus never sought his own affirmation. That's what he was saying to us in those words that we read from chapter 5 and verse 54. If I seek to glorify myself, I invalidate myself, my glory, my glorification, my affirmation of myself is not acceptable. It is the Father who glorifies me. Jesus' ambition, his sole ambition, was only to honor and glorify the Father. The Father's heart is salvation for the world. The Son has come to bring that salvation. The Father's provision is grace through the merits of the Son. He is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Let's go back to the prologue. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John said, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now, as we have often studied, grace is based on what? The merits of the son. What gives the Son his merit? That he shares the essence of the Father. That he is deity. That he has eternal worth. He is eternally righteous. He is eternally just. He is eternally holy. He is eternally loving. He is eternally and infinitely goodness. That is what gives the Son his merit. And the only sufficient basis... The only sufficient payment for our sin was the merit of the Son. And so again, the Father's heart is salvation for the world. The Father's means of saving the world is the merit of his Son that gives him the basis to extend grace to the world. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life because they've trusted in the merits of the one, 
that the Father sent to represent his heart of love and to make atonement for sin. Jesus is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. The Son will honor the Father's heart and will. The Father will show the world the glory of the Son as the only one with sufficient merit to atone for sin. Ah, what a beautiful truth. The Father will declare that he will glorify the Son. And he will declare the Son as the only means by which anyone can come to him. Experience his love. Why? Because the Son has the only sufficient merit. Because he is the Word made flesh. He carries the glory of God within him. And that glory becomes the payment for your sin and my sin. For Jesus, the cross is his moment of glory. For the Father, it is the moment when the Son will most glorify him. And the moment when he can glorify the Son by honoring and exalting him as the only sufficient means of salvation. The righteousness from God that has appeared, by which God is able to justify us and declare us righteous in his Son. So Jesus will declare that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He will later say to his disciples, after he has washed their feet, and after he has shared the bread with them, and after he has spoken to Judas Iscariot and told him to go do what he must do, then Jesus will say to the remaining 11 disciples who are there with him, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Now, I must confess to you that when I read that verse, it's almost like a riddle. It goes back and forth. And I find it hard to absorb it all. But in one another, the fullness of grace was revealed. The Father in the Son, the Son in the Father. The Father displaying his love for the world and the grace that he's able to extend to us. Because the Son is representing his heart. And the Son who shares his glory, his righteousness, his perfection, is willing to die on the cross and to make atonement for sin. So now the Son of Man, the one who has come for a sub, as a substitute, the Word made flesh, the fullness of humanity, the fullness of deity, is glorified. And the Father is glorified in him. Again, on this last evening with his disciples, Jesus said to them, 
This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. It's interesting when you look at how glory and glorified is used in the epistles. It's almost exclusively in the same line as what Jesus speaks here. That you and I live in such a way that we glorify God. That God is glorified in us. He spoke to the, wrote to the Corinthians and said, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. He wrote to the Thessalonians, and Paul said that he was praying for them so that they would be worthy of God in such a way that he would be glorified in them and they in him. You see, the same principle by which Jesus and the Father interacted and brought glory to one another is the same principle into which you and I are called to live in Christ. So first of all, Jesus is most glorified when we put our trust in him as the atonement for our sins. When we cast ourselves upon his all-sufficient righteousness, as we sang this evening, when we stand upon that as our only hope, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. The Father is glorified when we trust in Jesus, the one that he sent to represent his heart and the provision that he made for our salvation. He is glorified in us when we say there's nothing else for me except for Jesus. I don't live for anyone else or anything else. I don't stand upon any merits of my own. I only stand upon Jesus. Again, Jesus did not claim any merit, any glory, any affirmation for himself. Jesus would even declare, I can't do anything on my own. It is only through the Father. That was the depth of his identification with the Father, his submission to the Father, the extent to which he carried out the Father's heart and the Father's mission. In the same way, Jesus would say to his disciples, apart from me, you can't do anything. I can't glorify God unless I dwell in Jesus. And God can't be glorified in me unless Jesus in all of his fullness dwells in me. And so Jesus illustrated it for us as the vine and the branch. You must remain in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then these words, this is to my Father's glory, that by remaining in me, not doing anything on your own, but making me the sole focus of your life, you bear much fruit. That brings glory to the Father, and that shows that you are my 
disciples. And so the same principle by which Jesus lived is the same principle by which you and I must live. Like Jesus, we must live with that one singular focus that God would be glorified in us and we in him. Ultimately, there is nothing else that matters. I want to share with you one final passage of Scripture in which the Apostle Paul emphasizes this aspect and this process, this dynamic of glory. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now the Apostle Paul, in the context of these words, has been talking about the process of becoming more dependent. If you re are familiar with the words that he wrote in the first chapter, he talked about being brought to the point where they thought they were going to die in Asia. All that confronted them, all the difficulties and the challenges, we were at the end of our rope. We were certain we were going to die. And then he went on to say, God brought us to that point so that we would not be dependent upon ourselves, but we would trust in the one who raises the dead to life. Remember the words of Jesus, without me you can do nothing. It must be my life in you. In the same way that it was the Father's life in him. And he lived out that life to bring glory to the Father, to accomplish the work of salvation. And so Paul is saying that God brings us to this place so that we will depend upon him. And then he went on to say in chapter 2, we are the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. Now to some, it's a wonderful aroma. But to others, it is the stench of death. And who is equal to such a task? As he continues writing, he says, we are ministers of the new covenant, but we aren't competent in ourselves to do anything in ourselves. But it's God who makes us competent. And then here in the words that we are looking at in chapter 3, he moves on to talk about Moses and the glory that Moses radiated because he had been in the presence of God. And then he comes to you and I. You see, this is God's desire, that our lives be transformed. So that what is seen in us and what radiates from us is not our own likeness, our abilities, our righteousness, and our goodness. But that of Jesus Christ, through the work of the cross, and through that transforming work of the Spirit, that makes us more and more like Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, he will talk about the things that we are going through that make it feel like we are dying. 
again, at the point of death. But he says they are light and momentary afflictions. And they serve this purpose to work within us a transformation so that Jesus is seen and the glory of God is revealed. You and I do not have any glory in ourselves. The only glory that we could ever radiate is because we've been in the presence of the crucified one. The only glory that we can possess, the only way that we can possess the likeness of Christ, which reveals his preeminence, which reveals how much more wonderful he is than anything else in this world, is that through the cross we die to self. Through the Spirit, we are transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And when the world sees us, they see that transformation. They see the beauty of Jesus. As I was thinking about this and preparing this Bible study, I thought of the words of that little chorus. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wondrous power and purity. O oh, thou spirit divine, all my nature refine, till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. For Jesus, he was living to accomplish the glory of the Father. That you and I might share in the life of God. His greatest moment of glory was at the cross where that was accomplished. The power of sin was broken. The gift of righteousness could now be made available to you and to me. Oh, how we diminish the righteousness of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, when we live for ourselves, when we live for our own purposes, when we pursue our own will, when we are content with our own human likenesses, when we don't want ourselves to be crucified and to die to sin. But oh, how the glory of Jesus is revealed. How the righteousness of the Father is seen. When self is crucified, when through the work of the cross, we die and we are transformed by the Holy Spirit and the nature of the Father and the glory of Jesus, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, his righteousness, his truthfulness is seen in us and through us. The highest worth of your life, the highest worth of my life, is that we bring glory to the Father. How is that accomplished? By not living for ourselves and not living out of ourselves any more than Jesus did. He lived to glorify the Father. He lived to reveal the Father's heart. He lived to show the Father's glory. May you and I, in the same way, Live for the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ.
Amen. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you that Jesus considered his greatest moment of glory, that moment when you would offer him as a sacrifice for sins, when you would satisfy your righteous demand for sin to be paid, and when through his righteousness and through his blood, you could forgive our sins and accept this as your very own. Father, thank you. Thank you that Jesus came for that hour. I can't avoid this hour. I will not say, Father, keep me from this hour. This is why I came. Oh, what amazing love and grace in your heart, Lord Jesus. What amazing love and grace in your heart, Father. Again, Lord, we pray that we will not live for any other glory, any other affirmation than that you be seen in our lives. So Holy Spirit, as we continue to go through this week, would you coach us, teach us, convict us, conform us to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Help us by the cross to be crucified to this world. Help us to be transformed by your spirit into the likeness of Jesus so that his glory, his beauty is seen in us. Father, when we have difficult moments this week, may it not be something of self that bubbles to the surface or that erupts out of us. But may it be the work of your spirit because we have spent time in your presence, because we have surrendered to you that causes the likeness of Jesus to be revealed in us and him to be glorified. Father, this we pray. We want Jesus to be honored in our lives. Father, we thank you for one another. We thank you for your word that reveals Jesus. We pray your richest blessing upon one another. Go with us and keep us. We trust your care and your protection and the greatness of our Savior in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.